I used to every, every two weeks on a Monday, every other Monday, I used to get ready early morning and, and go to a spot where I couldn't drive anymore and then I'd hike three and a half hours up over the mountain and into a mountain village. Uh, often, I didn't, didn't weigh it, but often the pack I carried was 30, 40 pounds or whatever and it was tropical heat, you get the picture. I was in better shape than I am now, even though round is a shape. Um, and, and, but that wasn't the hard part. Uh, you see, uh, occasionally, because people want to be generous, when I would leave Wednesday morning, uh, Pablo and myself, the fellow that usually traveled with me, uh, somebody would come inevitably with a chicken or two live, tied by the feet, and I was supposed to, this is a gift, and I was supposed to carry this live chicken out of Llano Grande. I'm afraid of birds. They flap their wings, I drop them. Like, don't do me any favors, please. I actually made Diane sit in the back of the pickup once, leaving one of the villages to look after a turkey so it wouldn't jump out, because there's no way I was going to sit in the pickup with a turkey. I don't remember if she was eight months pregnant at the time or not. That, that, that's only a memory. Uh, but I'm, I'm afraid of birds. And, and I know people that are afraid of mice. I actually know a story about somebody that called her husband, because, and she was standing on the toilet in her house, screaming because there was a mouse. So we all have these fears. Some of them are ridiculous, but they're there anyway. And, and, and we need to deal with, uh, with our fears. Uh, as Lester's already mentioned, both of our texts this morning and Matthew have doubt and fear in common. And although Matthew is relating an experience uh, that happened some 2,000 plus years ago, the questions that Jesus asks are relevant even today. Uh, so let's look at these passages, and I'm going to look at them in kind of in tandem. I won't separate them. Uh, first of all, the storm. The storm. Uh, the storm that arose on the Sea of Galilee was a common occurrence, and it has to do with the topography. I won't explain it, but the topography was such that you'd have a, a storm come up like that, and it would be fierce, because the Sea of Galilee isn't actually that big. Uh, but also, most of the disciples were experienced fishermen and on that sea. So it's not like they didn't know. Uh, so this must have been a pretty significant and powerful storm to make the disciples cry out in fear, Lord, save us. And notice the second one doesn't actually, the second passage doesn't talk about storm that much. But if you look at the timetable, they were paddling for nine hours. So they were struggling, even in the second one. I'm guessing that most of us have either faced our own storms or are actually in one right now. It could be loss of a job. It could be struggling to pay your mortgage or your rent. It could be loss of a loved one. It could be a lot of different things. I'm guessing most of us have been in a storm of one kind or another at some point, and many of us are likely in one right now. Storms are inevitable. And Jesus never promised to remove us from the storm or to prevent storms from happening in our lives. He didn't make that promise. What he did promise was to be with us in the storm. He is with us. Fear. That's kind of what stands out in this passage. The fear and, and the phrase, do not fear or do not be afraid, is found over 120 times in Scripture. 
If it's found that often, it's probably fairly obvious to us that this is a pretty significant problem or a significant challenge uh, being afraid. Although it appears 120 times in Scripture, Jesus' question here, why are you afraid, only occurs in this story. This is the only place where he asks, why are you afraid? I wonder why Jesus didn't stick to the script. Is it because he wants us to grow in self-awareness and to face and name our fears? We, we have to face them and name them. We, 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 don't, we, we don't live in denial. Actually, that doesn't help us say, oh, you know, if you hit your finger with a hammer, say, oh, praise the Lord, I didn't hit my other finger. No, you don't. You say, ouch, that hurt. Well, fear also has two sisters. Amazing, eh? Anxiety and worry. I'm guessing none of you are familiar with anxiety and worry, right? Are we familiar with that? Anxiety and worry? And, and what in particular triggers anxiety and worry in your life and mine? We have our triggers. Sure we do. In a recent survey, over 25% of the participants reported feeling moderate to severe anxiety. 25%. And I need Dalen to help me right now. I've forgotten what the number of college students face depression, but the percentage is awfully high. It's probably just going up. So if we had 100 students, we, know, we knew that a certain percentage were probably struggling with it. Canadians between 18 and 39 years of age reported the highest levels, with 34% having anxiety and 28% depression. Well, the fear of the disciples rises out of their lack of faith. They've mislaid their faith like you mislay your car keys. They had a glimpse of trust and faith in Jesus, but they also easily panicked. And we find in our passage today a, a contrast between their behavior and Jesus' behavior, which demonstrates different attitudes to God. And, and that means also the way you and I respond to fear also to some degree demonstrates different attitudes to God. Jesus trusts. The disciples panic. Now, I'm not going to tell you that fear, you should never ever be afraid. I've told you that I put my son on the fridge and said, jump, and stepped back, and he jumped. Also had both boys jumping off of a three-meter platform while I treaded water in the, in the pool waiting for them to jump, and they launched. I'm sure they were afraid, but their trust overcame their fear. Their trust didn't immobilize them. So I'm not telling you that you can't have any fear this morning. I'm telling you that it should never, ever handcuff you. You shouldn't live there. You shouldn't stay there. The disciples do not interpret Jesus' untroubled sleep as evidence of his trust in God. The text kind of suggests that. They awaken Jesus with somewhat of an indignant wail of complaint, as if he were in some way responsible for their dilemma. And their question that they ask actually expects a yes. Do you do care that we are perishing, don't you? You do care, don't you? But it also suggests that they're peeved with his apparent lack of concern. And here's the bitter irony of it all. 
these same disciples later on will go to sleep in the Garden of Gethsemane in Jesus' hour of need. But there, it's not, as Jesus asked them to watch and pray, it's not because they're trusting, it's because they have heavy, heavy eyes. And they're falling asleep. And Jesus, of course, chides them and says, are you still sleeping in a far more critical hour than this one? Are we prone to panic when the going gets tough? Are we still able to trust? Or is our faith shattered, stunted, unsure, shaken, or in collapse because of our circumstances? It's often said, Peter was afraid. He saw the waves and he became afraid because he, he looked, he took his eyes off Jesus and looked at the waves. But Peter's the only one that got out of the boat. He's the only one today, to my knowledge, that can say, I actually walked on water. Can we calm ourselves down when we hear the voice of Jesus saying, be still, I am God? Is that voice loud enough in our head when, when things get really tough? We can easily claim to be courageous when all is calm. We can have faith in God when we don't sense an urgent need for deliverance. Yeah. But when we come under extreme pressure, the courage and assurance that Jesus even cares for his own, let alone protects them from this ultimate danger, can fade fast. We see the waves, like Peter. We need to know that Mark wrote his gospel for communities that were facing intense stress and a storm of persecution. And he wanted to lift their eyes from the surging chaos that seemed to engulf them and have them fix their eyes instead on a vision of the one enthroned in heaven. And, and by the way, that's the purpose of Revelation too. If you're going to the book of Revelation hoping for a timetable for the end, you're looking for the wrong thing. It's actually a declaration of victory to a to a believing community at the end of the first century that is suffering severe persecution. And the message is, battle is already won. You're on the winning team. It may not feel like it right now, but you're all victors. Hang in there. To apply this to our contemporary situation, we need only to name the storms that threaten us and our community of faith and paralyze us with fear. And then we must lift our eyes above the tumult to the one who rules all things that we can have the same assurance that Paul had. Paul knew what it meant to be in difficult, unbearable circumstances where he felt crushed and despairing of life. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Confidence in the victory Jesus has already won allows us to face all threats with courage. So how will we react when our ship feels tossed about and swamped by the waves? I don't know that going through life with zero hardships actually makes your faith stronger. And a word to the wise, don't pray for patience because the only way to get patience is to go through difficulties. Never pray for patience. But struggles tend to make us stronger if we embrace those struggles with faith. How will we react when our ship feels tossed about and swamped by the waves? 
Will we lose our nerve and our faith like the disciples? What will it take for us to know that Jesus is God and will protect us even through death? Like the disciples, we may feel that our cries for help are met with stony silence. Life is filled with hazards, and not just from the sea. The desperation of the disciples while Jesus sleeps may seem to parallel sorry, uh, the way that the church feels. They may feel that Jesus is absent in times of struggle. Or we may feel personally a sense of abandonment. When storms sweep through our lives, Jesus may seem indifferent to our plight, asleep at the helm, or absent. Many who lose their jobs, their health, their friends may feel that Jesus deliberately ignores their fate and shows no concern for them. And then fear leads to despair that God doesn't care. But you and I cannot expect a miraculous intervention that will calm all storms in life. Storms are part of life from which no one escapes. Chaos hits our life, and it can happen so quickly. One moment all is well, then in a flash all is utter chaos. We must learn to trust and a Savior who does not deliver us from the storm, but through them. Christianity is not a refuge from the uncertainties and insecurities of the world. And I guess that some, some of us, may be too cowardly to get into the boat in the first place. Others of us may wish that we had never embarked and want to retreat to the safety of the shore. But then, as you read in the next text in Matthew 7, 28, then they meet raging demons. Hmm. In other words, there are no safe places in life. And one can only find security with Jesus and a serenity that this world does not know and cannot give. Jesus is our security. So we come to faith. In today's passage, and you haven't heard this word juxtaposition before, uh, but in today's passage, fear and faith are juxtaposed. They're opposites. There's an interplay between the two in this passage. And the words, you of little faith, in verse 26, occur five times in the New Testament. And notice, always in reference to the disciples. Lack of faith among those for whom faith must be central is especially disappointing. Has there ever been a time when at Jesus' command, you've stepped out of your comfort zone? Whether it's a boat, a relationship, a job, or even a conversation. What happened when you did? It's often easier to have faith at the beginning when things are new and exciting. But when things get a bit stormy, doubt can gnaw away at the edges of our resolve or even sink us. I think it's pivotal then, our answer to the question, who do you say that I am? Because... My kid jumps off the fridge or off the three-meter platform because of who he has come to believe me to be, that I will protect him. And, and so the answer to that question, who do you say that I am, who is Jesus to you, is the most important question you can ever answer. And it actually is a game changer. Jesus chides the disciples and says, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? 
The disciples have fear, but it's still, they have faith, but it's still a very weak faith. Jesus calls them to understand more clearly who he is. In fact, he had just fed 5,000 with a few loaves and fish, and they still didn't understand who he was. True faith will enable us to trust in God's care even when the circumstances do not look promising. Whenever little faith is used in Matthew, a root cause of that failure is a failure to see beyond the mere surface of things. You see, when we only see the surface of things, we're not seeing reality as it is. And you and I need to see that our God is God. That Jesus is with us, and he will carry us. Jesus is able to calm the outward storms that threaten your life and also still the inward storms that torment and threaten your soul. The reaction of the disciples says much more about whom they are beginning to understand Jesus to be. Notice they, claim, they exclaim, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Jesus is far more than the disciples have up to this point come to grasp. And I wonder, is he also far more than you and I have understood? Let that sink in for a moment. Is he more, is he more than you and I have come to understand? And I realize you and I will never understand God fully. He's beyond our limited understanding. But who is Jesus to you and me? Faith chases out fear, or fear chases out faith. The message is clear. Jesus is equal to any threat that may shatter human life. I want to conclude with a few thoughts from Susie Larson. I don't know how many of you uh, listen to podcasts and stuff, but uh, I found some thoughts from her that I thought were really good. All of the spiritual giants in the Bible walk through their own fires. But instead of surrendering, surrendering to their circumstances, they surrendered to God in their circumstances. And they came through the fire without smelling like smoke. That reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They didn't smell like smoke either. And boy, they were in the furnace. Seasons of challenging circumstances come and go in the life of a believer. Keep walking. Keep trusting. And if you can't seem to hear what God is saying in this situation, this circumstance, this struggle, then remember what he has said. I can face today's challenges when I remember how often God has been faithful, how he has been consistently faithful in the past. And notice what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Claim that. Claim that. Are you truly free this morning? Are you on your way? Freer than you've ever been? Are you still needing to reclaim some territory in your life? And I'm not talking about birds and mice. I'm talking about the more weighty issues.
What are my fears? And how does God figure into my fears? How does my faith keep me in the midst of that? And do you believe with all your heart that God wants you to be free, to live free, without fear? I believe that he does. Let's pray and then I'll ask uh, Joel and Stanley to come up and we'll see if there are some questions. Heavenly Father, we, we admit that like the disciples, we're often paralyzed by fear. It may be circumstances, it may be challenging situations that come up. It could be very, a variety of different storms in our lives. And we need to remember that we have an anchor in Jesus Christ. And we need to be firmly fastened to that anchor. Lord, we ask that you would increase our faith. That our faith would continue to be strong as we trust in you our faithful God. We commit ourselves to you to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so 204-408-5537, first question. Faith or trust, what's the difference? I understand how trust and fear are like oil and water, but I'm curious as to what you define as faith. Does doubt mean you don't have faith? You take a crack at that, Stanley. Okay. Praise God. <laughs> um, Bible described faith in Hebrews chapter... 11 of verse 1 as now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen and um, trust I would say trust is total reliance on God having no alternatives as to what you believe God for now faith, I also describe faith as um, believing in what Jesus did on the cross. That's, that's, that alone is faith. Then trust is having no alternative as to whatever he says to you. For example, um, I once described faith in school as going to an exam hall without reading. Believing that your friend read and all he read will make you pass. And that is having total reliance. Like, I don't have to do anything. If he said this is going to happen, it's going to happen. And even if what you are saying is the opposite of what you are seeing, you just remain there. I told a friend many years ago that it's too late to backslide. It's safer to sink with Jesus that to reign with the devil. So, if anything is happening and it's like, it's not what it's supposed to be to a believer, it's safer to sink with Jesus. But I know that nobody sinks with Jesus because he can't sink. I'd, I'd like to respond to the question about doubt. Um, it, 
we sometimes think that if you're a believer, you should never doubt. And, and I think that's wrong. I think actually doubting can strengthen our faith because doubting means we're actually honestly facing what's in front of us. Um, and, and I realize that that's risky because doubt, you can go left or right when you doubt. And the, I think the point of doubt is that if you face your doubts honestly and then you go to God with those doubts, you can come out stronger at the other side. So I don't think doubt is a bad thing. Um, and, and, and we shouldn't right away, if somebody comes with a doubt, we shouldn't right away say, oh, you shouldn't doubt. I, I think we need to recognize the doubt and, and validate the doubt, but then what does God say? Yeah. Uh, so doubt, doubt is okay as long as you don't stay there or it doesn't just spiral into lack of faith. That, doubt has been human. Yeah. Like you... When you say, I'm a believer, I'm a believer, I'm a spiritual man, I'm a sp you are human before uh, we, we say, I'm a man of God. Remember you said man of God. So you're a man before you became that, before that God. So doubt is being you. And you have to be you to be able to face anything that is in your front. So being yourself is not bad. That is being human. Then when you be yourself and see the situation, then you bring God into it and How patient is God with us in our personal journeys of growing faith? God is so patient. So patient. Like, I've never seen... Nobody can be as patient as God. One thing I have come to understand in my short journey on earth is that God is so patient that... Even when you give up on yourself, he believes that you can still pick up yourself and go beyond where you think you have ended. And that's why there is no excuse whatsoever for somebody to take his or her life. Because God never gave up on you. The Bible says the man whose son left him, that we call the prodigal son, the father from the dead boy was leaving the house the father was expecting the day the boy would return because he knew that his son would return. So God is so patient with us, so patient. I don't know how to explain it, but God is so, so patient. So patient. Well, the Bible is full of stories. That's the Israelites going to the promised land messed up over and over and over and over and over, and they were still God's chosen people. And he still decided to look after them. He still gave them manna every day. He provided water. He provided shelter. And when they got turned around and still had to go to the desert for 40 years, it was a bit of a punishment. But he still looked after them. And, and we look down our noses at the Israelites for their lack of faith. And yet we have all of Scripture. And we have the Holy Spirit. And how good are, how well are we doing? Right? In other words, we should probably not be too critical of them uh, because we face the same challenges. Well, it's a great example. I look at it when I mess up or I make bad decisions. And I, we're, we live in a world where it's perfection or nothing. Yeah. We look down at our nose at other people or other believers. And that it just motivates me that God looks after those, looked after those people when they made mistakes. And so we don't have to be hard on ourselves. We can 
we can turn that corner and God is still going to be patient and look after us. Okay, one question from the floor and then I think we'll call the praise band up. Okay, um, I just want to address uh, what you guys are talking about, doubt. Um, for me, there's a parallel in the Doubting Thomas story and a little bit in this one where Peter walks on water because he actually doubts he says, uh, if it is you, say, come, say, allow me to come. So he's, he says, if it is you, he doubts. Um, but he doesn't get rebuked for that doubt. Jesus says, yeah, come. And the same with the doubting Thomas story. Uh, Thomas doesn't get rebuked for his doubt. He says, Bless, blessed are you for seeing and having seen him and believing. Um, so is there like, a, is there like different levels of doubt, uh, you know, um, that uh, God accepts? Uh, some doubt he accepts and some he doesn't? Um, okay, I would say that there is, there is no level of doubt that God accepts or rejects. I'll, I'll come this way. Uh, the Bible says God knows that we are human. He knows our frame and deals with us according to our frame. Now, he understands your level of knowledge of him and he can accommodate your ignorance. But the only thing that you must understand is God expects us to grow. And so that situation that got you confused and in doubt yesterday shouldn't get you confused today. So I would say doubt is a way of knowing God better. Because you have to be confused and go to him with your confusion, then he gives you an answer. And when he gives you an answer, you cannot be afraid for that reason ever again. Okay. Uh, praise man, why don't you come up and uh, lead us in some more singing? Thank you. <laughs>